We're going to start a new series tonight. We're going to walk through the book of Amos. And uh, I actually put that on Facebook today so everybody that knows anything about the book of Amos wouldn't come to church tonight. So that means that you are all the rookies that never read the Minor Prophets. <laughs> Amen. No, I'm just kidding. But All right, let's pray and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your love that you show us through your word. We thank you, Father, for your sovereignty and for your power, for your rule, your authority, your dominion. Lord, we thank you for your frankness and how just honest and forthright you are with your people. And Lord, even when you speak things that hurt, they're true and they're valuable. And we praise you tonight for that. We thank you for the book of Amos. We thank you for this prophet and his ministry. We thank you for the words the Holy Spirit spoke through him. We thank you for the preservation of this incredible text that we get to spend the next several weeks in, Lord. We pray that you will lead us and guide us and that you will illuminate our minds to all the things that you desire for us to see. Help us to recognize your providence in studying this book at this time by your design and for your glory. So we pray tonight, as always, for ears to hear, hearts to receive, and courage to obey. We thank you in advance for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you have to try to uh, imagine, because that's all you can do. We don't, you don't have any context for this. But it's 2,800 years ago. It's a completely unrecognizable world then to us now. Amos comes on the scene early on in the beginning. He's sort of the, the, the forerunner of the prophets, if you will. This is prior to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. This is one of the earliest prophetic texts that we have. The people of God are what are in the position where we've talked about over the last several months through our series uh, under authority, where the people of God are split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom of Israel, a southern kingdom of Judah. And that's sort of the, the world in which Amos enters into. Understand that at this time the temple is packed. That if you were to uh, walk amongst God's people, whether in Israel or Judah, on the Lord's day, you would from a mile away hear the singing of the people of God. And, you know, the uh, excitement and the crowd. And it, it looked like a it looked like an incredible uh, spiritual time from the outside. But what was going on then 
is very much like what's going on now. That people weren't devoted to God in the way in which God has mandated us to be devoted to Him, but they were devoted to God in a way that suited their purposes and their desires and their understanding and their way of life. You see, really money and comfort and things such as that, those are not our idols today, and they weren't their idols then. They, they're not what we worship, they're what we obsess over. What we worship is a God who allows or validates the things we obsess over. Do I need to say that again? Do you understand what I just said? It's the manufacturing of a God who's okay with things the way we want them. That's the exact situation Amos speaks into. So in verse 1, the book opens with these words. The words of Amos, who was among the sheepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Now, a few just introductory details. Amos, we see, is from this tiny village, Tekoa, which is in the southern kingdom of Judah. What makes Amos, there's a lot of things about Amos that make him very interesting. This in particular, that he is from Judah, yet he is called to prophesy in Israel which is a little bit unique and different. So this little, uh, we don't know about his family background. We, are not, we don't have any indication of what age he is when his ministry begins. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So this is the totality of what we know about him is what we'll find out in our study of this book. What we do know is he was a shepherd a sheep herder, and a cultivator of sycamore trees. And so it wasn't that he was growing sycamore trees like maybe somebody might a bonsai tree. He was cultivating sycamore trees for the fruit that they produce, which is figs. And remember in Hezekiah, we talked about the value, the medicinal value of figs and how it was uh, a compress of figs that was put on Hezekiah that relieved his deadly ailment. And so that's what he did. Uh, he wasn't trained as a prophet. We'll find out when, at some point when we get to chapter 7. He is the ultimate sort of blue-collar uh, prophetic voice. The most seemingly unlikely person 
The name Amos means burden. Well, that's just a blessing. So from the beginning, he was always not necessarily a burden as much as he is one who carried a burden, the bearer of a burden. And so when you start to put all these pieces together about Amos, here's what you realize is that only the God of the Bible would take a nobody from nowhere and use him to speak from heaven. And so the initial sort of introduction to this person, Amos, at the very least should let you know that if God could use Amos, God can use you and he can use me. Like I said, we're about 760 B.C. It was two years after his prophecy that there was a massive earthquake that's recorded in all of human history, and we'll talk some about that in the weeks to come. So understand that the prophet Amos doesn't come with a, a new law. It's important for you to understand this. But what he's doing is reiterating what was revealed to God's people before they entered the land of Canaan. Because you need to understand this before we go any further because it seems as if he's speaking um, new things or he's bringing uh, new revelation. But what Amos does is reiterates and attempts to realign the understanding, worship, and theology of God's people. So every word Amos speaks is in line with what God spoke through his servant Moses. And so as Moses goes up on the mountain, receives the Ten Commandments from God, uh, the people of God now have their marching orders. They, they have the blueprint for following the Yahweh God of the Bible. And so when you fast forward to the time of Amos, these are people that are very zealous about Moses. They're very zealous about uh, the, the, the God. They, they claim to worship the same God that spoke to Moses in their minds. That's what they believe to be the case. And it was very much the same as it is today. It was very much the same even when Jesus came on the scene. Notice the words of Jesus that I put there on your handout where Jesus says, you do not have his word abiding in you. Why is that? For you do not believe the one who he has sent. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they that testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you. That you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from another and do not seek the honor that comes 
from the only God. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, then you believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now you think about this. These, Jesus is speaking to people who are searching the scriptures, who are very zealous for God and ultra-religious. And you think about today. You think about, uh, I had a conversation last night uh, with the elders about uh, my conviction that far and away, the greatest challenge, the greatest threat uh, to the gospel today, it's not even close in my mind, is pragmatism in the church. I am forever bewildered at the degree to which people even in this fellowship, have been so brainwashed and ingrained to believe that if it's easy, then it's good, and if it's hard, it's bad. It's just amazing how we so often come to the conclusion that when we're endeavoring to do something and we keep running into roadblocks, that we are so ignorant and infantile in our understanding of God that our natural response is to believe that God is not in it. Because if God were in it, surely the door would fling right open on the very first try and it would be so easy. And when you believe that, which let's be honest, many of you do. Let's just be honest. You know you do. It is devastating. Devastating. You cannot live faithful to God as a pragmatist. It is impossible. You cannot. And you miss all of the opportunities that God has for you. Let me give you an example. You see, think of the rationale it takes to leap theologically to that conclusion. That when you are continually banging your head against the door, and the door won't open. And so you determine that the reason the door won't open is that God just isn't in it. And in order to do that, you have to fabricate in your mind a God whose priority in your life. Think about this. The only way that works is if God prioritizes you not doing that. You understand how stupid that is? As if the sovereign God of the universe is worried that you're going to do something you shouldn't do, and so he's playing the shut door game with you. He would just blow the door up if he doesn't want you to go through it. But in reality, the God of the Bible prioritizes people of faith, 
people of resiliency, people who are tough, people who are willing to do hard things. And therefore, the reason you're banging into the door over and over and over is because his priority is developing and building your tenacity as a follower of him. And every page of the Bible teaches that. And yet, you know what we have? We have K-Love theology. That's what we have. And it makes me want to vomit. Because it is totally unbiblical. And here's the thing. How many people are walking around like a bunch of zombies spouting off online and, and to all their friends about how something went so smooth that God must have been in it and something was so hard that God was shutting the door and the whole time you're missing the opportunity to grow and to accomplish and to experience the very thing that God's trying to work in your life. Do you remember that? You're going to need that in about 30 minutes from now. And so these words that Jesus speaks in John chapter 5, you know what these are? These are, these are no different. He, it's the same thing. People go church shopping today. Imagine church shopping. We go to find a church where we like the preaching, where we like the music, where we like the, the whole, con just the idea of that is, is literally just mind-boggling. Church shopping, and then if anything goes some way you don't, you just go to another church. How in the world? See, that, I mean, that is one thing we don't have a problem here because, let's face it. Tonight's a great example. Clearly, I'm not trying to draw a big crowd. The very idea that sheep, think about this, sheep are out in the wilderness interviewing shepherds for the job. Insanity. Total insanity. So you see, through Moses, God explained in perfect detail how his people are to have a relationship with him and with each other. How that's to function. How it's to exist. And so he, he gives them the law, the first four commandments, how to relate to him. The next six commandments, how to relate to one another. And all of it is built on this understanding of a relationship. It's a covenant relationship. So it is a re it's not a casual relationship. It's a covenant relationship. And we're very familiar with covenant relationships. We have tons of covenant relationships in our lives. And so the, God establishes a covenant relationship. Now that's important for you to understand. Because 
within the confines of this covenant, well, he establishes, uh, uh, there's, there's, it's filled with promises. Over and over and over, through the, the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, you find God saying, and if you do this, and if you're faithful, and if you, then I will do this. And he's saying, these are the things I have for you. These are the, God is the ultimate encourager. The ultimate encourager. Even though it is his uh, character and nature to call us to things and not explain everything to us in order to build our faith, that is very true. The same thing's true today. It's always been true. The same God that came to Abraham and said, pack up and move, and that's the only information he got. That's how God speaks to you, and that's how God speaks to me. God doesn't tell me all the steps from here to there. He's only a lamp unto my feet. It's one step at a time, one step at a time. I only know the next step. I don't know anything after that. It's the same thing for you. But here's what he does. He gives us big picture encouragement in the midst of it. He, he, he makes sure that we know. He doesn't just roll up out of nowhere. He comes to us and he lets us know about him and about his plan and about his promises and about so that when he gives us the next step, we have something to anchor, to tether ourselves to so we can take that step. You see? And so he does this through the law. And it's filled with promises. And it's just like any covenant relationship. They all come with responsibilities. You see, when you enter into a covenant marriage with another person, that comes with responsibilities. You see, that's not a casual relationship. It's a covenant relationship. It's when you enter into a job, when you enter into a contract, when you enter into... These are covenant relationships. They have built-in responsibilities. Each party understands the expectations of the other, and each party comes into it fully understanding that if somebody doesn't fulfill their side of the deal, there's going to be consequences. That doesn't catch anyone by surprise. Nobody got married and didn't know that. Nobody. It's the same thing with God. It's a covenant relationship. It has responsibilities. So the entire uh, 28th chapter of Deuteronomy is, starts with, here's all of the ways that I'm going to bless you in your faithfulness. And then the second half is, here's all of the curses that are going to come upon you if you ignore me. You see, that's how God, God just comes right out and says, here's the deal. So that when I... When you're banging your head into a door, instead of quitting, you'll remember all the things that I promise you if you're faithful. You'll realize that everything Jesus taught about faith was in the context of persistence, wasn't it? When Jesus taught about prayer, I mean, imagine Jesus standing up, the disciples Oh, Lord, please teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, pray once, and if it doesn't happen, quit and move on. 
Instead, he's like, no, go in your closet, shut the door. He's like, you come and you knock and you knock and you knock and you knock. And if they don't answer, you just keep knocking, keep knocking, keep knocking until somebody, you just beat the door down. That ain't on Caleb. No, it's all, oh, just smooth sailing. Everything's just, you know, we're all, everyone's a theological genius. We all know the mind of God. Oh, God's not in that. Oh, God, he's in this, but he's not in that. Or he wants me to do this, or he doesn't want me to do that. And it's so absurd. Because amazingly, here's what it is. Listen, amazingly, do you know what God wants us to do? All the easy things. And all the really hard, scary things. Guess what? He didn't want me to do that. Isn't that convenient? It's, it's amazing how convenient that is. Have you noticed? So here we are. In this prophecy, the prophecy of Amos, the Lord of heaven and earth is going to remind us of who he is, what he requires of those whom he has set apart to be his people. There's going to be a differentiation, as you're going to see. That it's different. It's not the same for everybody. But the main thing to understand is that the prophecy of Amos reveals God to us. Not the God we want Him to be. Not the God we think He is. Not the God we hoped He would be. Not all of those things, but the God He is. You see, He's a living God, right? So what are the... What, what would be just a simple implication of serving a living God? One of them would be this. That He's revealed to us in His actions because He is alive. So one of the ways that God reveals, him to, uh, reveals, reveals Himself to us is in what He does. So in His actions, we we. See the character and nature of God. And included in his actions is this. His action in response to our action. You see, one of the key ways that you can know who God really is is by paying close attention to God's action in response to your action. He's alive. You see, we're, we don't serve a God that's just only historical, that's only past tense. That's, no, no, it's present, active today, now, in this very moment. He's active now in this moment. He's active in your life. He's active in my life. And so what is He doing? And what is he not doing? 
And one of the things we'll see is that his actions reveal his patience. Thank goodness. One of the first beautiful principles that jumps out from the prophet Amos is God's patience. All right, let's start reading in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazael and shall devour the places of the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant of the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. The people of Syria shall go captive to Ker, says the Lord. Then he goes on in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter from Ascalon. And I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they delivered up the whole captivity of Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which they devour, which shall devour its palaces. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send fire upon Taman, which shall devour the palaces of Basra. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of the people of Ammon, and four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead, that they might enlarge their territory. But I will kindle fire in the wall of Rabbah, and shall devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle and a tempest in the day of a whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. But I will send a fire upon Moab and, I shall, and it shall devour the palaces of Kirath. Moab shall die with tumult and sh with shouting and trumpet sound. And I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all its princes with him, says the Lord. Now let me explain some of this to you, okay? All of these nations that are listed, these are people outside the covenant relationship with God. All of them. So the initial prophecy of Amos is to God's people about people who aren't God's people. Which seems strange. Why in the world does God speak to them or speak of them or speak about them? What, in, what is... What is afoot here? 
Well, it's because they're His creation living in His creation. That this has to be understood before you can move on into the places where we'll go next week. The prophecy to Israel and Judah is coming. But in order to get there, you have to, you have to understand what God's saying here. Okay, so let's look back over these verses for a minute, okay? And let me give you some explanation. First of all, Damascus. That's the first city dealt with. That is the capital of Syria. So we're talking about the Syrians. And in verse 3, what the Bible, uh, what God accuses them of is their threshing Gilead with implements of iron. And so when the Syrians conquered, now Gilead is, a, is God's people. So that would have been on the eastern border of Israel. And so when the Syrians conquered them, what the Syrians did was they, they had developed uh, iron implements to pull behind horses to thresh wheat, and they laid all the people out in fields and then trampled over them, pulling these iron sort of bars and hooks over them and ripping their flesh apart and making a big graphic, violent, Seen and display. Verse 6, Gaza. Same Gaza that exists in the news today. This is the Philistines. And God's referring to the fact that they took captive the whole captivity. So they were enslaving people groups. And God has deep disdain for those who would exploit others for their personal gain. Then you have Tyre. This is the capital city of the Phoenicians. You see, every nation is identified by its capital city because that's where the leaders would exist, and the leaders are held to a higher accountability than the people. And so you notice that all the kings are spoken of by name. So he is furious with these people groups and these nations. And in particular, he's furious with their leaders. And so the Phoenicians, this would be modern-day Lebanon, if you were trying to figure that out on a map. And they delivered up the whole captivity of Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Now, when you think about this, we covered this in the King series somewhat, but there's two different occasions in Scripture where God's people, whether it was right, wrong, or indifferent, made agreements or treaties, and yet they didn't keep them. In other words, the Phoenicians broke the covenant agreement, and God is upset about that. These are pagan people. Do you understand that? Okay, verse 11. The Edomites. These are way down south, below uh, on the southern border of Judah. And the Bible says in verse 11, because he purged his brother with a sword, cast off all pity, his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. And so this pagan nation was very wicked and evil, and God's calling them to account on 
their hatred that they had for, for their fellow human being and the, the cruelty with which they treated them. You know, the, the Edomites, that's descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. Then verse 13, the Ammonites. The Bible says God's problem with them is because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their territory. It's interesting. We're reading something 2,800 years old. And you notice the character and nature of God never changes. The God who is for the defenseless. The God who is for those who can't defend themselves. The voiceless. And so he specifically singles out. Not that it wasn't all an atrocity. But notice God singles out the babies ripped from the wombs of pregnant ladies. And here we stand today. 60 million abortions later. I'm not talking about worldwide on this soil. 60 million. Oh, but God bless America. We're a Christian nation. God bless us. 60 million. You think God's just going to overlook that? You think that's just going to slide on by? Moab. Chapter 2, verse 1, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. That you see, the Moabites were filled with vengeance and, you know, getting back. And, and here's what I want you to, I'm just trying to give you a little bit of context to, to, to think some of these things through. All of these nations, okay, God's just giving some context for what he's going to do. But I want you to notice how specific he's being. All of these nations border Israel or Judah. All of them. And the, the first three, so he starts out with three random pagan nations that border Israel or Judah. Then the next three he mentions all, again, border but have theological connections. So, in other words, you got... Uh, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Then you got the Ammonites, and you got the Moabites. Those are the children of the offspring of Lot from the book of Genesis, Abraham's nephew. And so, what is what is all this about? What what has this got to do with anything? All these, okay? Why is God talking about all this terrible behavior? From pagan nations. Well, of course they're terrible behavior. I mean, they're pagan nations. That's what pagan nations do. Mm-hmm. But they're God's creation living in God's creation. And remember what I told you about relationship and covenant. And so even if you're outside of the covenant relationship that we understand as the old covenant relationship with God, when you come into existence, you see, the, the, for our 
understanding, the moment of our birth, there's a relationship that we have with our Creator. And that relationship comes with responsibility. Whether we ignore it, whether we acknowledge it, whether we, it doesn't matter how far away we run from it, it never changes. All of the crimes listed in these first, with these six nations, are crimes that have certain things in common. They're all crimes against humanity. Do you notice that? And God's repulsed by that. These are pagan nations, okay? You feel good? You safe? Here's my question. How many of you, how many Christians in their home, under their watch, with no thought whatsoever, themselves or allow their children. We play video games about crimes against humanity. Realistic video games where you get points for blowing the head off of your enemy. Oh, yeah. And we don't think God cares anything about that. There's nothing wrong with that. And here's the deal. Because we have not had war on our soil for 150 years, the violence in us has to come out somewhere. So we go to video games. And we, we sit there and, and we train up our little children to blow things up and to kill people and to do that for fun. And every one of those Simulated murders is against something that's a simulated creation of God. And we're just fine with it. We're fine with it. It's fine. It's no problem. We, we turn, we've turned abuse against our fellow human, into entertainment. It's entertainment. And here's the deal. Then we're shocked. Think about this. We want the most realistic, most life-simulating, most 3D, high-definition, real war games we can possibly get. And at the same time, we don't connect the dots that our soldiers that come home from actual real war are never the same again. They're on drugs or they're having to use pills to numb the pain. They're struggling from PTSD. You know why? Because war's not a game. It's not a game. It's not fun. And it shouldn't be a game in your house. Because God doesn't like that. Because that's his creation.
Let, let me show you something. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. Prior to the flood, God floods the earth and eliminates everyone except for Noah and his family. And he says, this is why. Because the earth was so corrupt before God and the earth was filled with what was it filled with? Was it filled with idolatry? Was it filled with false worship? Was it filled with what was it filled with? And what is one of the very first things God says after Noah gets off the ark? Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. You don't think God cares about that? You don't think it's important to God? You don't think it matters to God? The way that you think about your fellow human being? Let me assure you of something tonight. Regardless of what you do with it, that's your problem. That's between you and God. But I will assure you that this is as true as anything that has ever left my mouth. How people are treated matters to God. It matters. It matters how you treat whomever you interact with. And these pagan nations are being called to account. Now, I said it shows the patience of God. You know why? Because it's three transgressions and to four. You know what that means? That means that the first transgression, God didn't kill them. The second transgression, God didn't kill them. And the third transgression, God didn't kill them. But the fourth transgression, he's had enough. He's sick of it. And I'm telling you right now, he's sick of us. He's sick of it. You see, we got to get foundationally correct and understand that to be a human being is to be a moral being. Period. It doesn't matter if you are born in a Muslim nation. It doesn't matter if you grow up as a practicing Buddhist. It doesn't matter if you're a terrorist. It doesn't matter if you're a serial killer. Hey, if you are human, you are moral, period, because you are created in the image of a moral God. And so you have moral obligations, and you will be held account to those obligations, regardless of what you do, regardless of what you believe, regardless of where you live. Every person who has ever breathed oxygen on this earth is moral and accountable. Everyone. Animals aren't. Trees aren't. Rocks aren't. People are. Only people. But every single person who has ever lived you see we're image bearers therefore we have a conscience you see you can't be an image bearer 
and then just neglect or negate all the things that connect you to the one whose image you bear. And what is incumbent or what, it, what, what comes with what's built in to being an image bearer is not up for debate, doesn't matter what your opinion is, and will never change. It just is. That's what it is. Period. And so God's written uh, His law on the heart of every human being. You know why? Every human being. Every single person. Because He's a moral God. And we're moral creations. And so you know it's wrong to kill. And if you kill, you're going to answer for it. It doesn't matter if you're born in a culture where killing's fine. Doesn't matter. You're accountable for that. It's wrong to lie. If you lie, you're accountable for that. That's just how it works. Romans chapter 2. For when Gentiles, again, here we are, pagans. We're not talking about Christians. We're talking about Gentiles. Outside the covenant relationship. Who do not have the law. They don't even have the law. They don't even know the Ten Commandments. They haven't even heard of the Ten Commandments. By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You see that? Now isn't it interesting that Amos comes on the scene introduces us to these six pagan nations. Now, just before we leave this, I just want you to really think this through. And he doesn't say a word. Not one word about their religion. Not a word. Doesn't even mention it. He doesn't say anything about the false. All of them are just riddled with false worship. He don't say nothing about that. All their Baal worship and all their... False God, he doesn't say a word about any of it. Nope, doesn't say anything about their child sacrificing, all that, doesn't say anything about it. none of it. He doesn't say a word about their beliefs. He only mentions, what is it? Their actions, their behavior. He doesn't mention their beliefs. He only mentions their behavior. Remember, they're pagans. They violated the moral compass that God put within them. And therefore, they're going to be held accountable for that. So God's judgment will fall upon these nations, not because they're pagan, but because they're human. You see? They're human. And so what Amos wants us to understand is how all this fits together for us. You know, how does this establish a foundation for us to be able to move into all the things that God wants to say to us through this study? We realize that every human is accountable to God, every human. Because, see, they're God's creation, and they live in God's creation. And He's, he is, he's God. 
That's just how that works. You don't breathe his air, live on his earth. I mean, you know, he created you. You, by default, are obligated to certain things. So this whole idea where we would sit around and we would try to have all these ivory tower conversations, blah, 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 about, you know, a loving God. How could a loving God send people to hell? I mean, it's, it's just absurdity because you've leapt over all of the very simple foundational realities that would answer that question for you. God doesn't send anybody to hell. People send themselves to hell. You see, the gospel doesn't come along and condemn people. The gospel comes to already condemned people. Everybody's condemned. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so even if you say, I don't care about God, I don't care if I fall short of His glory, what has His glory got to do with me? It doesn't matter. You don't get to make that choice. Ma'am, sir, whoever you are, you will stand and you will give account and it will be bad. That's the way it works. So every human is accountable to God. But every human is not equally accountable to God. You see, we're very we're in a very different situation than these pagan nations. See, we're in a very different situation than The person born in a Muslim nation. The poor person who's grown up all their life a devout Buddhist. There's a difference. There's a difference in the universal accountability of all image bearers. And those who know. What God said. Who know what the law. You see, this is why Amos starts this way. Because these are nations who God didn't give the Ten Commandments to these six nations. And to all the other nations he didn't list. He's just showing us an example. He said, I didn't give them my, I didn't teach them how to have a relationship with me and how to have a relationship with each other. Oh no, they're all going to be held accountable for their crimes against humanity. But when it comes to you and me, it's a whole new discussion. Because you have the law. You know what I've said. You see, remember what I said? The temple's packed. The singing's loud. People carrying their Bibles around. They're talking about God. They're waving the Christian banner. The problem is, 
It's not the Christ of the Bible. It's the Christ they want him to be. They created an idol to validate their obsession. Just like the United States of America today. No difference. You see, this, this prophecy that Amos is going to walk us through, this is not some appeal for the, 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 all the distractions today. And all the, the ridiculous things that suck you in. And in doing so, suck you right out of the things you should be into. This is not an appeal for social justice. That's not what, this, that's not what the prophecy is. That's not what the Word of God is. It, it's, not, it's not some uh, proclamation to society at large. This is a plea for faithfulness to people who know better. In Hebrews chapter 13, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, did Jesus sanctify all the people or just some of the people? You see, to sanctify means to set apart. There's no sanctification without justification. There's no justification without repentance and lordship. So though the blood was shed, though the blood was sufficient, it's not applied to all people. It's only applied to those who receive him the way he has determined that he can be received only on his terms only on his terms no other way regardless of what you think regardless of what Caleb tells you regardless of what all the nonsense in the Christian books try to tell you only one way only one Regardless of how tolerant you want to be, regardless of how unloving God makes you feel at times, only one way. He suffered and bled that he might sanctify a specific, the people, the people of covenant, the people of relationship. The people of salvation. And so by entering into that relationship. See this is the problem. With all this. Mamby pamby. Easy believism. Just. Profess faith in Christ and everything's fine. And you get to go to heaven. All your problems will go away and you don't have to worry about it. This is the, the, this is the problem. Is that 
what the Bible is saying is that there's a relationship, a covenant relationship that came through the world's most excruciating, extraordinary suffering and sacrifice by the shedding of the blood of the God of the universe and that in that covenant relationship, if you enter into that relationship, there are responsibilities in that relationship. You can't just marry God and then act like anything you want to. You think he's okay with you just cheating on him with anything you want to? Do you think that's the kind of husband he is, that he's just going to let that ride? Oh, heck no, that ain't how that's going to go down. That is not how that's going down. Now, you can, you can twist, pervert, magnify, bend, reflect, the doctrine of the grace of God any way you want to, but it will not go down that way. It ain't going down that way. This is how the teaching of the Scripture makes any sense at all. Because the, in common human sense, the Bible would teach there's a wide gate and gazillions of people are running through it to this amazing free gift of freedom. But that's not what's happening. That's not going to happen. It's a little narrow gate. And few, few find it. And there's droves of people who live their whole lives thinking that they found it and will come to that gate and be rejected and will say, but didn't I do this in your name and that in your name and this in your name and that? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You were a worker of iniquity. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Because the relationship that you enter into with God is covenant and has responsibilities. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 16, the Bible says, if anyone, if anyone, and it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how much Caleb you listen to, it does not change a thing. If any human being thinks for one second they're going to follow God, this is the only way it's going to happen. You don't get to make it up, change it, get creative, personalize it, make your own emoji so that it looks just like you, so that you can do things, you know, digitally that are not really you. Oh, no, that's not how it works. No, no, if anyone desires to come after me, then let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's how it's going to go. And whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit will it be to a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? Now, hold on now. We're just about done. But we got one more pill to swallow. And it's going to be a tough one. If anyone desires to follow me, let him deny himself 
take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. How you doing, pandemic generation? Huh? How you doing? How's your how's your COVID fanaticism working out? How's it going? Huh? You know what the church today is consumed with? How can I stay healthy? How can I protect myself? How can I protect myself? We're consumed. All we care about is what are we going to do to not get sick. That's all we think about. That's all we care about. Now listen. Jesus said that. He said, now if you want to follow me, you got you to take up your cross. It means that if you're going to walk with me, you're not called to good times. That's not how that goes. You're called to suffer. You understand? That's embedded in the covenant relationship. Now, if you don't want to suffer, you don't want to suffer here, Go right ahead. But suffer, you will. You will. Let's think about this for a second. We're called to carry our cross. Now, am I saying that the Instinctive desire for self-preservation is bad? Am I suggesting that we should all wake up every morning and say, I hope today is the day I die? Maybe. There's a lot of days I wake up and hope that I'm just going to be honest with you. I ain't lying. My wife gets so furious. Huh? You see, the problem is not that we have a desire to live. That's not the problem. So what is the problem? The problem is why we want to live. Do you know why we want to live? Do you know why we don't want to die? It's because we want to enjoy. We are motivated to live. We're motivated to protect ourselves for our own interests and our own gain. When instead what we ought to do is we ought to say, I'm going to do everything in my power to not get COVID so that I can promote the gospel and shine the light of Jesus in every corner of this world. 
that every single day that I get to live is another day that I have another opportunity to glorify my Father in heaven. But we're so consumed with trying to protect ourselves and trying to be safe and trying to do all this just so that we don't lose our little world of comfort. That is a total slap in the face of a God who died to give you the opportunity to live. That's the problem with the church today, right there. That is the problem. So I'm here to tell you right now. Am I sick to my stomach thinking about the nonsense I got to go through in the weeks to come? Absolutely. But what makes me sick thinking about it is our motivation for what we do. You see, the truth is is that this calamity as we see it has befallen us. And we just think, oh God, this is so terrible. And people are sick and people are dying and people are scared and we got to go through all this and they're going to shut this down and do this and none and all that and all and none, you know, and all. Yeah. But has it ever occurred to you that our Father in heaven who slaughtered His Son to give us the opportunity to accomplish His will on this earth, what, what do we expect a loving God to do with a people who won't do anything when it's easy? See, how many days? How many days have you woken up and lived your whole day and went to sleep that night and never even thought a thing about God? You hadn't thought about God. You, hadn't, you didn't tell anybody about God. You didn't read your Bible. You didn't pray. You didn't do nothing. You just lived your life. And it was day after day after day that turned into weeks and months and years and it just kept going and going and going. And we just thought, well, God's just going to let it go like that. And we think God owes us somehow. Hey, I want you to live. You know that? I don't want you to exist. I want you to live. Live like the Bible calls us to. Live. Do whatever you can do. Make your decisions based on your burning desire to accomplish the will of God for your life. You see that? Don't sit around and, and spend all your days on the computer screen listening to this specialist and this person and that person trying to make a decision about what you're going to do. For the love of God. Make your decisions based on your desire to live for God. 
And then whatever you do is motivated by the right thing, by the higher calling, because God judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. You understand that? Is that not crystal clear? Let's live. Not so that we don't die. Let's live so that we can live. Hebrews chapter 12. See, see that you don't refuse him who speaks. Think about it. How many people can you think of? They are in church, they were in church every time the doors were open. They taught you things, influenced you, mentored some of you, did this, did that, nah, nah, whatever, and you ain't seen them. Where are they? Where are they? They don't come to church. And they got 50 million reasons why. 50 million. And they're all compelling reasons. And you know what? From a human perspective, it all sounds great, but the Bible says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. Do you know what him who speaks said? He said, you better not forsake the assembling of yourselves. That's what he said. You know that? That means this isn't some take it or leave it operation. You know, there may be weeks where we can't. There was weeks in the past. There may be weeks in our future. We don't know. We'll just have to see. But I can tell you what it's not going to be. It's not just going to be some indefinite stoppage. That's not what it's going to be. Because we can't ignore him who speaks. For if they didn't escape who refused him who spoke on earth, well, much more shall we not escape if he who would turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once, once more I shake not only the earth, but heaven also. You see, listen. You got to get pragmatism out of your heart and out of your mind. You got to declare war on this absurd notion. That when things seem to be their worst, when things seem to be their bleakest, when things seem to be the, the hardest, that God's somehow not there. And remind yourself that God is not so much concerned about whether you walk through this door or don't walk through that door. God's priority is your faith. It's your character. It's your perseverance. Let's live. Let's live to live. You can slice it up any way you want to slice it up. 
But at the end of the day, the call to carry our cross is a call to obey God no matter the cost. Period. Why do you think Jesus used that imagery? He didn't say carry a big stone. He didn't say carry your boulder. He didn't say carry your giant lead anvil. He said carry your cross. He said carry the hardest thing that's ever been carried so that you would understand that if you if you desire to come after him then the covenant relationship requires that we're willing to obey him no matter the cost and so you know what I'm not losing sleep over I'm not losing sleep over whether you wear a mask or don't wear a mask or whether you get vaccinated or don't get vaccinated or whether you believe this or believe that. Ain't none of that matters to me. You know what matters to me? All the people you meet every day that are going to hell, that's what matters to me. That's what matters to God. I want to live until every last drop of whatever's in me that God can use for His glory is squeezed out. And that's what I want us to do together. And so can we please know that we're about to enter into a difficult season and instead of running away or cowering down or buckling under or letting fear consume us or acting like a bunch of kindergartners, let's rush into it and say we're going to leverage the whole thing for the glory of God.